Welcome to the 180 Ministry Podcast. Please check us out at the1-80.org. So as we go into our Bibles, let us go to the book of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And I will summarize up to that point from the beginning of Scripture as we go in now to Genesis chapter 3. And our focus is going to be verses 12 onward to verse 15. So Genesis chapter 3 verse 12 onward to verse 15. All right. So when you are there, say amen. 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 All right. So it says there now the summarization is that God created a world filled with sin or without sin? without sin. Without sin, right? God created a world that was good. And as he continued, it's powerful. He was basically laying the foundations on each day. and each day the foundation that was laid complemented the foundation that was laid on the previous day so the days were connected the things that were made in each day were connected and it also helped the next days that were made now these were literal 24 hour periods in which god did this instantaneous creation right and so as he did this work the world was perfect and then in genesis chapter 2 god comes back and he gives more detail as to what he did in genesis chapter 1 there's a debate going on right now actually in the christian world sadly of this aspect that these two chapters of genesis were basically allegorical how many of you have heard of that right the title of this understanding is called theistic evolution or creationary evolution i believe it's called so the idea is that the days of creation were symbols of millions of years however it's interesting that each word each time the word day is mentioned in genesis chapter 1 the word that is used is yom which actually means a literal 24 hour period Therefore we are seeing that God did not create the world over a period of millions of years but rather he created the world instantaneously by his word. Now after that happens after God lays the the overarching theme in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2 comes along and God goes in to describing the details of what he explained in Genesis chapter 2. All right, so Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 1 is the forest, Genesis chapter 2 are the trees of the forest. All right, God goes into detail about what he said. And then Genesis chapter 3 is where we have the reality that despite God giving man everything that he needed, man and woman, everything that they needed. What's that? they wanted more right and so they fell as a result of giving in to satan's suggestions despite the fact that they were warned about that and so in light of that we read that there were consequences 
in light of the fall of man. It says in verse 12, And the man said, The woman that thou gavest to me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, Who did she blame? The The serpent beguiled me or deceived me, and I did eat. Now look at what the Lord says to the serpent. Now you remember, in the Bible, the serpent is a symbol for who? Satan, Satan, Lucifer, right? The fallen angel, the arch apostate. So in light of this, this is what he says to the serpent. And through speaking to the serpent, he's also speaking to the enemy. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, You are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon, now listen to this, upon thy belly shalt thou go and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. So if this is the consequence, that has to then mean the serpent was not on its belly before, right? It had to mean that it wasn't crawling on the dirt before. This is very interesting. Now, Behind the scenes, God now goes into verse 15 and he goes even deeper. He goes to the spiritual problem, which was the enemy of souls. First, verse 14, speaking to the physical serpent. Verse 15 now, speaking to the spiritual serpent. He says, and I will give, put enmity between thee and the woman. And between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, meaning, the, meaning when it comes to this subject of who shall bruise who, how shall this be done, what will this enmity result in? It says, it shall bruise thy head, but now check this out. What does the next part say? Thou shalt bruise his heel, all right? So that means the seed is a coming person who would crush the head of the serpent. The word there, bruised, by the way, in the original language actually means to crush. So, it shall crush, meaning this seed shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel, or crush his heel. Now, the reason that this is so powerful is because it's delineating for us how God would bring about the salvation of man. Many look at the Bible and they ask the question, okay, if the Bible is really consistent, then God says that in the day that you eat of this fruit, what was the consequence? You will surely die. So that means when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, what should have happened that day? They should have died, right? Now the question is, if God is true to his word, then why did they not die? Yes, okay? So there was spiritual death. But I want you to look at this. Hold your fingers there in Genesis chapter 3. And I want you to go with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Is it all right if we study the word of God today? All right. That's why we're here, right? So Revelation, and I want you to go with me to Revelation chapter 13. And speaking of the beast's power, that's another study in itself. But it says, speaking of the beast out of the sea, I want us to go in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. Revelation 13 and verse 8. And when you are there, say amen. Amen. All right. 
So it says, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. This is speaking of a power that existed in times before and will rise up again and the whole world will follow this power. It says, all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from when? The foundation of the world. So that means as it concerns Jesus Christ dying, even though, yes, he died physically 2,000 years ago, his death was established. The reality of him having to die was established when? Exactly. Before the foundation of the world. In other words, the plan to bring man back and to save men and women and children was not concocted when Jesus died. The plan was not even concocted at creation. It was concocted or formulated eternity past. God was ready. The fall of man did not meet God unaware. And you know that's good news because it tells us in the times in life when we fail, God has already prepared for that. He doesn't desire for us to fall. But as John puts it powerfully, I believe it's in 1 John chapter 2. Brethren, I desire that you sin not. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So Christ seeing the coming fall of man, put himself there and said, Father, I will place myself as a substitute to pay man's debt. And this is the reason why Adam and Eve didn't die that day, physically. Physically, they did not die because there was a lamb. Christ presented himself as the one who would die in their place. So now God says, he promises that this lamb would come. And not only would this lamb come, who was the seed, but in coming, what would Christ do to the plans of the enemy or to the head of the enemy, the mind of the enemy? He would crush it. So now we're going to see how he does this. This is what this study is going to be all about. How does Christ crush the works of the enemy and in so doing, save us? Because we see that the mind of the enemy was set to cause the fall of man. And did that plan work? It did work. Because man has fallen, right? But Jesus' plan is to redeem man. And so when it says he comes and he crushes the serpent's head, it means that he crushes the plans of Satan as it concerns our lives. The mind of Satan, which is against us, Christ crushes those plans when we come to him. The question now is how does he do it? How does he save us from falling into Satan's deceptions and being crushed? How does he save us from the fall into sin, salvation. Go with me in your Bibles. Do you have your Bibles with you? Go with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms chapter 77. How does Jesus save us from our fall into sin? How does God restore us? Where do we see this plan to save us delineated? 
All right? And when you are there in Psalm 77 and verse 13, let me know by saying amen. 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 Praise the Lord. All right? Now, the context of Psalm 77 is that we're talking about how God, remembering how God has helped his people in the past and how he has saved them. So we're talking here the contextually about salvation, how God has saved his people in the past. And in light of this, the psalmist states in verse 13, thy way, contextually, thy way of saving, thy way of salvation is, it says, oh God, is where? In the sanctuary. In the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? So if we are to understand the way that Christ redeems humanity from the fall into sin, where must we look? The sanctuary. The sanctuary. As we look into the sanctuary service, we begin to understand the processes involved in how God saves us. And so that's what we're going to begin doing today as we look into the Old Testament sanctuary. So with that, let's go in our Bibles to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. I tell you the truth, friends, when I first understood this, it blew my mind away because I began to realize that God is a systematic Savior. He's a Savior that has systems that He works with, and through these systems, He saves us. There is a process involved in salvation, and so we're going to understand this now as we look in Exodus chapter 25. Now, the children of Israel, they've come out of Egypt. You remember when they left Egypt, does anyone remember what the Egyptians gave them because they were afraid? Yeah. All of this gold, silver, all of these riches that they had, they gave them. And now God says, take a portion of these things and now give them to me for a specific purpose. So we're reading here in Exodus chapter 25, and we're going to find out the purpose now. It states, verse 8, with all of these gold and silver and stones, precious stones, God says, let the people of Israel make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. The powerful book, Desire of Ages, page 23 states, God commanded Moses for Israel, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And he abode in the sanctuary in the midst of his people through all their weary wanderings in the wilderness. The symbol of his presence was with them. So Christ set up his tabernacle in the midst of our human encampment. We're going to come to that later. He pitched his tent by the side of the tents of men that he might dwell among us. And made us familiar with his divine character and life. Now this sanctuary that was built. And you can see a representation on the screen of it. You see the, the vast mountains. You see if you can look carefully. Some of the children of Israel surrounding the edifice of the sanctuary. And then what do you see sprouting up out of the sanctuary? Right, that cloud. Right, that pillar of cloud. Now what was that a symbol of the presence of? presence of God. Does anyone know what that pillar of cloud turned into at night? 
pillar of fire. Now, friends, think about this. You are in the midst of the wilderness, and you could see fire going out of the sanctuary, which is produced by a supernatural presence. I mean, if there's anything that should call out our fidelity to God, it's that. But do you know that despite all of those miracles and all of that manifestation of power, Israel still disobeyed God? In other words, what I came to realize in studying the sanctuary is that it is not necessarily the outward display of miracles that captivates and sustains the allegiance of the human heart. Rather, it is as God comes and he does his miracle within that he is then able to change and sustain our hearts in him. God has to change us within that we might be faithful without. And so, that's why the miracles of the Old Testament, even with all those miracles in the wilderness, the people still complain. And I was thinking, man, Lord, you know I do the same thing to you. Many times in my life, after God has worked a powerful miracle, then another valley comes, and I find myself uttering complaints. And God says, I just did something powerful for you. I just took care of you. <laughs> I mean, don't you think I'm going to take care of you in this valley too? So, may it ever be a reminder to us that, you know what, we are just like the children of Israel. I used to get on them so much. And then God showed me, hey, you, you, yeah, yeah, you're, <laughs> you do the same thing, right? So God is trying to change us as well by teaching us through their complaints. Now, verse 9 tells us, watch this. This is amazing. It says, according, Moses was to have the children of Israel build a sanctuary. But notice how he was to know how to build this edifice. It says in verse 9, build it according to all that I show you. After the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments, that's the articles thereof, even so shall you make it. So this earthly sanctuary, Moses knew how to build it because he received a revelation of what? A, say that again? The heavenly sanctuary. Another sanctuary that was already made. The earthly sanctuary was only a replica of that which was already in heaven. And we're going to see that as we continue throughout these next few weeks, laying out the reality of a sanctuary in heaven. So Moses does this. Now as he does this, throughout the books of Exodus, you find a description of the sanctuary articles. Today we're just going to look through them, and then as time goes forward, we're going to come back and go through them step by step and see the practical applications for us today. So, this is part one. We're going to see how close what God desires to do through the sanctuary system and how it is a symbol of what He wants to do in our lives. Now, in the first aspect, we're going to see that this is how the sanctuary basically looked. It's a, it's a representation of it. So it was surrounded by the white cloth that you see which is a symbol of righteousness, if you look in Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8, and then, or and purity as well, but then now we're going to go a little deeper. 
As you look on the screen, you can see the different parts of this sanctuary system. Right? So you can see two articles outside in the courtyard there, courtyard area. Then the next part that the priests would officiate in, because there were priests of the tribe of Levi that were officiating in each compartment of the sanctuary. So the first aspect, the courtyard. Second aspect, what is that? The holy place. And then the third aspect is the? Now, quiz question for you guys. Where did God dwell in all of that? The most holy place, right? Uh, yes, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, right? So, as we look at this now, now we're going to look at the articles of the sanctuary. So we've seen a layout. Then we've gone and we've looked at the aspects, the three aspects, the courtyard, the holy place, and the most holy place. And now let us look at the articles itself. So the first two articles that you see when you enter in beyond that white curtain into the sanctuary, what the Israelites would do in the morning and in the evening is that they would bring their sacrifice because of, does anyone know? Sin, right? So when the people sinned, they would bring a sacrifice for sin morning and evening. And that was done throughout the year on a daily basis. God's people would bring their sacrifices. And we see there at the altar of burnt offering, we see there the priest ready to officiate. And so what the person would do is they would bring the sacrifice they would take their hands and place it on the sacrifice. Let's say it was a lamb. They would take their hands, place it on the lamb. And that was a symbol that what was happening? Exactly. Transference of sin. So they laid their hands on the lamb. Transference of sin from them to the lamb. And then the lamb was slain. And it was burnt then upon this altar of sacrifice or altar of burnt offering. Friends, don't forget that because as we go throughout our series, we're going to come back to what this means to us. Next article. Does anyone know what it is? Yeah. Who said it? The laver, right? So the next article is the laver of washing, right? So the priest, as he catches the blood of this sacrifice, he would then, before he enters into the sanctuary, do an act of purification, purifying himself, getting ready to now go into the holy place. So he would purify himself here, and then he would take the blood of the sacrifice that was done at the altar of burnt offering, and he would take this blood into the sanctuary, and he would sprinkle it in the holy place. Now we're going to look at this, the articles now in the, in the holy place. So you've seen the articles in the courtyard. Does anyone remember what they are? The altar of, of sacrifice and the laver. That's right, right? So we have these two articles in the courtyard. Now next, we go into the holy place. One of the first articles that we see is the lampstand. Yes, the light of the world, right? So, as we look at this lampstand, we're going to see what this lampstand symbolizes as we go forward. And then we see the next article is the table of 
shoe bread, right? So this table here, you would see six, six almost like pancakes on either side. You see that? That's a symbol now of the children of Israel, but it goes deeper. It goes deeper. It's a symbol of the bread of life, Christ. Now, as we go forward, the last article in the holy place is the altar of incense. Now, what do you see behind the altar of incense? Yes, you see a veil, a curtain. Behind that curtain, what do you think is there? Yes, the most holy place. And the main article, among others, the main article in that part of the sanctuary is what? The Ark of the Covenant, yes. All right? So the Ark of the Covenant, all right? So as we look at this, we're seeing the Ark of the Covenant, and it's powerful because I was looking at this at one point and it blew my mind because the Ark possessed what? Ten the Ten Commandments, which we would call the Covenant, right? So it possessed the covenant of God, the Ten Commandments. Now it's interesting. If we were to state an attribute of the Ten Commandments, if we were to, if, when we think of it in our minds, the law of God, what attribute of God do we usually connect that to apart from love? His character. His character, obedience, His love. I'll give you guys a hint. It starts with J. Judgment or justice, right? So we usually say, okay, God is just. Therefore, his law reveals that aspect. This is how we know that. God has principles. Now, on top of that law, does anyone know the lid that covered the covenant? What it was called? The mercy seat. The mercy seat. In that mercy seat, you'd see two beings on either side embedded within the mercy seat. Two angels, right? And in the center of those angels, in between the cherubim, what do we see there? The Shekinah glory, the very presence of God. So what does that mean then? The Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat is to God. Was that? His throne. There you go. His throne. So what are we seeing here then? When God executes judgment, because what is closer to the foundation of the ground? The law. But what is above the law? Uh, well, God, yes. The mercy seat. So whenever God judges men, he judges them through the lens of mercy. Hence, we do not receive what we deserve many times. God judges us through the lens of mercy. It's interesting. As you look at the New Testament, you find out the New Testament word for mercy is actually the huge word propitiation. And do you know who is called our propitiation in the New Testament? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Therefore, the mercy seat is not just a slab of gold. It's a symbol of a man. It's a symbol of the Son of God. Mercy is a person. And God sent him to be the substitute, taking on the justice that was due to us, that we might be saved. So as we look at this now, we've seen the sanctuary. We've understood these aspects of the sanctuary, the holy, the courtyard. What two articles were in the courtyard? The altar of burnt offering and the laver. All right. Now we step into the holy place. What three articles were there? 
Lampstand, table of shewbread, altar of incense. Okay, now we step into the most holy place and what was the major article that was there? The Ark of the Covenant. All right, so as we're seeing this now, we're gonna look today at the forest of what this means to us. As time goes forward, we'll look at the details. Okay, we'll look at the trees in that forest. But today, we'll look at the forest. What does that mean for us? The way of salvation is laid out in the sanctuary. Now notice, I want you to notice what the sanctuary was covered with. And I want you to go here with me in Exodus chapter 25. And I want you to look with me at Exodus 25 verse 5. Exodus 25 verse 5. And this is the covering of the sanctuary. There were many aspects within, but this is the covering. It says in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 5, And ram skins dyed red and badger's skin. As you continue reading in the book of Exodus, you realize that this actually was the covering of the sanctuary. It was skin. In other words, the divinity of God in the most holy place was covered by what? Skin. Now friends, that should pique something in your mind, right? Because if this is the way of salvation, the only way that we can truly be saved, is it by the blood of bulls and goats? No. It has to represent something deeper. And so this is where I want you to go with me in your Bibles to the book of John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Brother Bobby, you know where I'm going. <laughs> John chapter 1, all right? Now, I want us to look at this. John chapter 1, and we're going to start off at verse 1. In Exodus 25, 8, God comes and dwells among his people, all right? But they still can't see his presence. There was only one time a year that the, only the high priest could go into this compartment that we're looking at here, the holy place. Throughout the entire year, only one time, and that was on the feast day of atonement. But outside of that, what we're gonna see now is that the glory of God was hidden. There was a sign of it in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, but they never actually got to see his presence. And so now we're going to see what God does. God says, the sanctuary is telling you of what I'm going to do on a deeper level in the future. I'm not content to dwell among you. I want to do something more. So John chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was where? With God. But not only was the Word with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and things, all things that were made by Him, the Word, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So who is responsible for the creation of all things? This Word, right? Or this Word that was God. <laughs> Jesus. Now how do we know it's Jesus? Verse 14. Yes, it says in verse 14, and the Word that was God was made flesh. But look at, the, look at the description. The Word was made flesh and 
hand dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelt there, do you know what it actually is translated into? That's right, Miss Philomena, exactly. The word there is tabernacle. So literally we can read it this way. And the word was made flesh. In other words, God took on skin and tabernacled among us. So do you see what's happening here? And what do we call that? When, when we look at it in the New Testament, the name for it is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God says, I'm not only going to dwell among you. I'm not content to just do that. I'm going to do something more. The sanctuary prophesies that one day God would come and dwell with us. He would take on, this is why the sanctuary we said was covered with what? Skin. skin. A symbol that what would Jesus do in the future? He, he would come in human flesh. Divinity hidden in humanity. Divinity perfectly blended with humanity. Now God says, hey, you know, I'm not just content to be among you. I'm not just content to be with you. You're going to see he wants to go even deeper. What's deeper than with? Inside. Inside. So take your Bibles and go with me now to our final few texts. 1 Corinthians. Go with me to 1 Corinthians. And we're going to start off in verse 3, chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to look at verse 16. And when you are there, say amen. All right. Praise the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. Paul speaking to the church at Corinth, to God's people. He says, Know ye not that you are what? The temple of God. And that the Spirit of God, what? Dwells in you. Now hold your fingers there and go over to chapter 6 and verse 19. Chapter 6 and verse 19, it states there, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, meaning in your minds and your hearts, which belong to who? God. So therefore we see through the sanctuary service of the Old Testament, the way that God saves us is that not only does he desire to dwell among us, God says, I'll do something more. I will take on human flesh and I will dwell with you. Now God and man are forever one in Christ. But God, Jesus says, it is not enough for me to be with you. I desire to be in you. The Holy Spirit, Christ's representative, is how Jesus dwells in our hearts. We are a living sanctuary. Mobile and moving around for what purpose? To will and do his good pleasure. To will and to do his good pleasure. 
Because by so doing, what happens? We give God the glory. God's character is revealed as he dwells within us. So the picture that I want us to get today as we look at this subject of reformatory movements of destiny in connection with the sanctuary is that God desires to raise up miniature sanctuaries in us, his movement, so that we, yes, can be the final reformatory movement. And we're going to see how that plays out in history. Because as we will look throughout history in the upcoming weeks, we will see that what God is doing is we're going to start off with the courtyard and see that to protect the articles. It doesn't make sense now, but it's going to make sense as we move along. To protect the articles and their symbolism in the courtyard, God raised up movements. To protect the articles in the holy place, God raised up movements. And to protect his article in the most holy place, God has in these last days raised up a movement. So friends, know that God wants to use you as his sanctuary and to dwell in your hearts. May it be our prayer today and throughout the rest of our lives that Jesus might dwell in us by his spirit. And the result will be we will be living temples bringing glory to Jesus. Amen. Amen. Did this make sense? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. With that, let's have a word of prayer as we close. Father in heaven. Thank you so much for your goodness toward us. Thank you that in this plan of salvation, part of that plan is that you make us your temples. Temples in which the word can be made flesh again. I pray that you would continue to guide us and fill us with your spirit. That Jesus may live out his life in us. Not by our own power, but by power from on high. This is our prayer, not just for today, not just for the rest of the week, but for the rest of our lives. We pray in Jesus Christ's name. Let all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. Please look us up online at the1-80.org and at the 180 YouTube channel. Please reach out to us with any questions or prayer requests. Until next time, thanks for listening.